Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the Bible. We, we live in a world that sends so many mixed messages and we thank you that you give us clarity and truth that we can rely on through all the ages. And we ask that you speak to us now through your word and that this might help us to draw nearer to you whatever our spiritual condition is and that you will do a work in us that we cannot do for ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that makes me valuable? What is it that makes you valuable? Uh, What is it that gives you dignity? Uh, What is it that helps you when someone has devalued you? I think we've all experienced that. Uh, We can devalue ourselves, of course, in the choices we make and the impact that has on our lives and the lives of others. Working with students in a school, uh, it's very rare to find a young person who really is aware of why they're on earth and who finds their value in the things that God says makes me valuable, that gives me dignity. Because in our world today, uh, image, and we read that in Genesis 1, that God, having made everything else, then says, let us make man in our image. And so he did. But image in our world today is what's visible, what's heard, uh, what measures success. It's not actually very rarely about things like character, uh, about meaningful relationships, about service, about giving. It's all about you. It's all about making a story for yourself. It's all about your story rather than about God's story. It's all about looks and fashion and where you've been and what you can do. It's all measured in externals. And it's any wonder that everyone feels a failure when they're comparing themselves to each other. So what is it that makes me valuable? Well, image here, as it's said, God made us in his image. It's not about what you look like. It's about what you are like. It's about those characteristics that God has formed in us that reflect his nature and self. Don't start thinking like New Age, however, that that makes us little gods. We're we're not little gods. It's more like the moon and the sun, that we reflect something from the source, but we are not the same as the source. So image is about something that reflects God's nature and and God's ways, but it doesn't make us God. Don't get that wrong. It's like the moon that has no light of its own, but it reflects the light of the sun. And so we bear something of God that makes us in his likeness. It doesn't make us another God. What are those things? Well, we get a clue here in the passage because God blessed male and female and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So here's some clues. Uh, God made us to do something that he does himself, that is to rule, uh, to care for his creation. Now, when the environmentalists, the greenies, say we're the only ones who care for the environment and when they say this is our idea, 
uh, they fail to realize that, no, it's not their idea. It's actually because they bear something of the likeness of God. They still bear something of the image of the God they deny, often. I'm sure there's some Christian environmentalists out there. And in fact, Christians should be the environmentalists that shame the rest in being good stewards of God's world, not worshipping creation, not making creation equal to human beings, uh, but caring for it. So there's a clue. We are to do something that God does in his creation. But there's so many other things too. As we read on, we discover God is relational. He created us to be in relationship with him and each other. And in the garden, they have perfect relationships. There's nothing to make people sad. There's nothing to take away, to make them feel devalued. In fact, we're told at the end of chapter 2 that Adam and Eve were both naked but felt no shame. There was nothing to concern them about what might be in someone else's thoughts. There was no devaluing of people made in God's image. Later in Genesis 9, murder is said to be a very serious crime because it's actually taking the life of someone made in the image of God. Later on, James speaks of us not cursing each other because we are cursing someone made in the image of God. So there's something very important about this that gives us value and dignity in God's world. There's many other things. Romans speaks about us having an inbuilt knowledge of God. In other words, we're built with the understanding within us that there is a creator God, that we are his creatures, and that we were made to worship him. And worship is really about doing what we do that God has given us to do. And and he's told us to live in the world, to subdue it, to build families and communities in all that may mean because we're also creative as God is creative. We like to have a different house to our neighbour. We, we like to have a different car to our neighbour. Whereas the bird in their species build all the same thing. We're creative. But in using our gifts and our abilities, we're to use them to build relationships. And in that sense, to glorify God. Not to worship the things, but to worship the giver. And to worship him, to glorify him in the way we do everything that we do. Now we know that things have changed. And we know that's because Adam and Eve wanted to take something that God said would not be good for them. And we can understand when we get to Psalm 8, which was also read to us, where David thinks on what God said in Genesis 1 about being made in his image to rule over all the other things of the earth, that there's something not the same. Even though at the end of Genesis 1.31 we're told it was all very good. God's creation was good. God's intention for his people was all good. They had a right sense of justice as God did until they disobeyed God and ate of that fruit. In in Psalm 8, David, looking at God's creation, uh, meditating on the Lord, his Lord, he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. He speaks of the heavens, the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars, which he has set in place. And he asks this question, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. I think it's interesting here that David doesn't say, 
what am I that you care for me? Because, you know, when we feel devalued, when we find ourselves struggling with our value and dignity in God's world, we become very self-focused. It's all about me. It's all about everyone else is okay except me. How come it's me that can't do this and can't do that and feel such a failure at all that I try? I meet students like that all the time. It's probably the biggest thing that students grapple with. It's influenced by lots of things. It can be through their difficulties. It can be because they're not academic or they're not sporty or, or they don't like their body image. It can be about all kinds of things. But they ask the question, why am I who I am? And I don't like it. That can be for lots of other reasons too. Same for us. We don't like what we see in the mirror. We don't like what we see when we look inside and and think about the week that's gone past. We don't like the way we handled some situations and the words we used. We don't like our history. You know those skeletons in the closet that rattle now and again when you're lying in bed at 4am awake? And the devil likes to pull all those things out and show them to you. Look at the sort of person you are. And we don't like it. David speaks for all of us, doesn't he, here? He doesn't say, um, why are you concerned for me? What is David that you care for him? And David could be thinking about his failures in life. He could be thinking about his failure to be the king of Israel. He should have been. He numbered all his soldiers uh, so that he might proudly boast about his army. He slept with another man's wife and then got rid of him. There's so many things that David could have said, God, you can't possibly still care for me. You can't possibly still give me that great privilege and responsibility of having a place in your word, world and your kingdom, having a part in what you were doing under your rule. But it's true for all of us. He speaks for all of us. Some people are put down. I think of a girl at school who walk, walks around with her eyes on the ground because at home... She's always told she's useless, and she's not very good at school, but she's the sweetest girl when you can meet and talk and listen to her. Her life was turned upside down by meeting her heavenly father. It's wonderful to see what God has done. Here's a person now, instead of saying, I'm useless, what's the point? I can't do it anyway, I'm no good at school, no one likes me, I go home and feel useless. She says, now I want to be a school teacher so I can help other kids through what I've learnt. You see, a life turned upside down in value and dignity by knowing what God values. It's not who you are in the eyes of others, it's who you are in the eyes of God. And we have to come to him to deal with those things that would rob us of value and dignity. Isn't it interesting in Psalm 8 that it's the creation that makes David think. Why does he look at creation as the example in which he then contemplates his own lack of value in his own eyes? Isn't it because the heavens that display the glory of God, they continue to fulfill their God-given purpose perfectly? And I know at home when we hear the birds sing, I think they're glorifying God. They're doing what God created them to do. So much of creation continues, even in its fallen state, to glorify the God who made it. It's only us 
So David can look at the stars and say, I see your glory, I see the work of your hands. And then I look at myself and I think, wow, it's not like that with us. The wonderful thing is that we still bear the image of God. You know, when the atheist says to you or the doubter says to you or asks you those questions about there not being a God in a world of injustice, you can say, why do you even think about injustice? Why do you even care for other people? Because if there isn't a God, what is it that would give us that notion? It's part of being made in the image of God. When someone says, how can you believe in God with all this suffering? You can say, who do you thank for the good things that God gives you? There's so much evidence for God in us and around us. Even if we've experienced bad friendship or relationship, the fact we know what relationship is, that we know what it is to give love and receive love, reminds us that we still bear the image of God. It's those things that give us value and dignity in God's world. And it is about character and righteousness that we don't have. And even there, God provides an answer. So even in a world that's affected by sin, even as we look inside ourselves and find that, even as we look at our experience and the way others have treated us, uh, God values us. We still bear his image. Hebrews reflects some of the thoughts of David. And when we come to Hebrews and look at another passage which speaks of those same things, because in Hebrews the writer comes to a point in his letter where he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. When we understand the context of Hebrews, we can relate to our own times of wondering what our value is in this world. Hebrews is written to Christians, Christians who were suffering These are Christians who know a very hard existence as the Roman emperor puts pressure on the Christian church. Here's people who have lost things, who are devalued in the eyes of the world, Christians who are not valued in any way, as in some countries that is true today. Here are people who have also failed under pressure as it mounted. There are those who turned away from Christ, at least temporarily, because it was so hard. And you can, you can ask this question in that context. You could even ask, are you really concerned for us? Are we really valued at all? Or you can take God at his word, which the writer to the Hebrews does here, and he says this is true, but it doesn't always seem true. It doesn't always seem apparent because we don't feel like everything's under us, that we're in control, that things are going our way. We feel rather the opposite, that we're not in control, that life is hard, that we have to live with our failures and the failures of others, and it just all seems to take away the reasons for living and the reasons even for following Christ. But there's one of these wonderful but sayings uh, as we find them in Scripture. You know, everything seems dismal and had it but for God. And we're told here, 
Yet at present, this is in verse 8, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, that is to humans, as God intended in this world. But we see Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Something that helps me in my work, something that's come to help a lot of students is in those moments of feeling overwhelmed by circumstances you have no control over, things you can't change. And often for staff in a school, it's wishing you could change the circumstance children go home to, but you can't. You can have some influence, but you have no power to change. And if it weren't for a phrase like this, you would wonder why you were even there. How can you send children back to some of those situations? But Jesus, but for Jesus, the one who sees all, who knows all, the one that Hebrews introduces us to in the verses that follow, who has suffered in every way that we have, who understands what it's like to be devalued in the eyes of others, who was put down by those who should have welcomed him into their communities and into their lives, who was unjustly treated, who was lied about, who was ultimately punished for things he didn't do, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. We need to focus on the things that never change, which takes us back to creation and that takes us forward to our eternal hope in Christ. And in the present, we take hold of Christ. We see how here. It's Jesus, we're told, in verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels too, like us. In other words, he became mortal. He became a human like us. But that's not all. We're told that he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Isn't death a devaluing thing? Old age today is seen as, a, as something that devalues a person and their usefulness in the world. The Bible doesn't say that. It says we need the wisdom, the experience of our senior citizens. And as Christians, we certainly value that. But death devalues us. It's something that takes away all control takes away everything but Jesus tasted death for us so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and we're told in bringing many sons to glory it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering it wasn't that Jesus was sinful and had to be somehow put through this process of dealing with his sin. It was that to be our high priest, the one who represents us, he needed to know what it was to be human, what it was to suffer, what it was to be devalued, what it was to lose his dignity in the eyes of the world. Not only that, we're told both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family so Jesus is not ashamed to call him brothers. You know, you, you can say that I can't understand what you're going through. Uh, kids say that to me too. They say, you wouldn't know what it's like. And I say, well, no, 
I can't, I can't stand in your place, but I can tell you someone who does. And, you know, some of the big things for students is what happens with their parents. And Jesus himself was cut off from his father. How can we understand that? You know, how can we understand what it was for Jesus, who from eternity had this perfect relationship with his father, was cut off on the cross for us? There's nothing that Jesus can't relate to in our suffering. There's nothing that Jesus can't help us with. He even calls us his brothers and sisters. He calls us into God's family. He shelters us there. He leads us there. He understands we can speak to him about it. To be in God's family, what a place of dignity. What a place of value. What a place to find ourselves as a foundation for life and eternity. Life is full of uncertainties. Life is full of our own failures and the failures of others. But can you hang on to this fact, that God's purposes stand eternally, and through Jesus we again are brought into that relationship with God that allows us to be what God wants us to be and to do what God wants us to do. And you know... When we discover that foundation in Christ that never moves, that never changes, we can again fulfill what God calls us to be and to do. And very simply, if we think of all those things that it means to be made in the image of God, to live in his world not as conquered, but as conquerors, as those who rule, as those who are here to represent God, to bear his image, to, to draw attention back to him, the one who made us, then we have a reason to live. And I'd like to say, and I think it's taken me time to realise this, I think growing up in the, the, with the baby boomers has been a generation that expected Jesus to come, particularly if you're in Baptist circles and you read all those books by Tim LaHaye and uh, Jesus was coming back in 1984 when I was reading the book in 1976. I only had eight years to wait. Can you imagine that? And we would have spent the last 30 years in heaven. A wonderful thought. It didn't happen. But so much of evangelical church during that time saw their sole purpose as to get people saved so that they would go to heaven. And meanwhile, we just wait for it to happen. All there is to do is to make sure you can get as many people to, to accept Christ as you can because we're really just waiting for him to return but when we take the Bible in as a whole, that's not what it's saying. Yes, we have a great commission to go into the world and to make disciples. That is the most important thing, given that it won't happen in heaven. It's too late then. But God created us to live in his world, to enjoy his gifts, to be part of communities and relationships and make a contribution to that that's valuable, that makes others valuable to be part of his purposes and his kingdom on earth. And that will become something complete in every sense when we get to heaven. So what does it mean for us in a new year, another year of work, another year of family, um, of education for, for our children? What does it mean? Well, it means us consciously, deliberately 
wanting to be image bearers that God has created us to be. Think of all those issues of being people who do treat his world well, of people who do uh, represent him and his justice and mercy in a world where that is often absent, of wanting to contribute to relationships and community where we give and receive the love that God has put inside us, particularly through Jesus, that we look at the gifts and abilities that God has given us, not just to find a career path and a big, big wage, but to think about how those gifts and abilities can be used to make others valuable, to make God's glory known, to bear his image by making a difference in his world. And if we can do that, then we truly have a Christian worldview, a Christian worldview that's not about us and our story, but about our story within God's story. And within that too is our story as a community of believers within God's story. Whereas in our world today, we, we see people thinking of my story and God's story is in here somewhere as long as it fits with my story. And our story is family and community and church fits in there somewhere too, provided it doesn't get in the way of my story. God's story is what we see, even this morning in a glimpse as we began at the beginning of the Bible. We went to the middle of the Bible. We went towards the end of the Bible. And we find that God's story is unchanged. We are made in the image of God. We are here to bear his image, to point others to his glory, to use all he's given us to honour him and to make a difference even in this fallen world, both through proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those who don't know him, to help them find their value and dignity in relationship with God and then in making a difference in his world. And you know what? A happy place this would be, wouldn't it? And I'm always amazed to see students who've lived selfishly realising that that's not where their value lies. And when they start to find their place in community and relationship, beginning with God, they start to see needs, not their own, but others. They start to serve rather than seeking to be served. They have a sense of God's honour, of God's justice, of them having gifts that they can use rather than to use others. And it's a wonderful place to be when we see that change that God brings. Friends, can I say lastly that in all our struggles, and and I know from my own experience that life isn't easy, that we need to start where we can where we can begin. We need to begin if we're struggling, if we're finding it difficult to have some sense of hope and purpose for another year, that we begin with Jesus. Isn't he right at the centre of all of Scripture? Uh, He's the one who can restore us into relationship with God. He's the one who understands all that we go through. He's the one, we're told, who suffered so he can understand. He's the one who died in our place for our sin. He's the one who's able to help us, it says in Hebrews 2.18, when we are being tempted. And tempted there is not just being tempted to do something immoral, uh, to watch the wrong thing, to read the wrong thing, to think the wrong thing. Uh, Tempted here is about trial. It's about the temptation to doubt God, the temptation to devalue ourselves and others. It's about the trials of life, the difficulties of life, the struggles of life. 
It's about all that makes life difficult and wants to rob us of our value in God's world and in God's future. Jesus is able to help us with anything that robs us of value and dignity and helps us restore that to others through Jesus as well. Can I say it's a good chance for all of us, and I feel the same. I try not to think about another year of school because I don't find it that enjoyable. I find it's full of purpose and there's moments of enjoyment. But isn't that true of life? Maybe your work, maybe your situation. It's not all about happiness, as the world puts it. It's about being in God's fallen world with a purpose, with value, with dignity, something to give, something to receive, uh, a difference to make for God and for others. Let's just pause before him now. Heavenly Father, you know all the things happening in our lives individually and as families, as a community. Lord, you know the things that we don't look forward to in this new year. You know the things that make us feel devalued and that rob us of dignity and purpose. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus has suffered all those things, that he might both understand us and be able to help us. And Lord, we pray that sometimes it's just taking a little tiny step forward in faith. It's not instantly feeling like we're we're conquering Uh, But Lord, we pray that you will work in each one of us. Perhaps it's because we don't know you. Uh, We still need your forgiveness for sin. Perhaps it's because others have devalued us. Perhaps, Lord, it's because work is hard or life is hard or family is hard. Uh, Lord, you know what it is. And we pray that we will each draw near to you as you draw near to us, that we will find hope and purpose and value and dignity in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to be able to present that to others. And we pray that many, many, many in this year will come to find their value and dignity and purpose in you as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.